Heavenly Father, as we approach your word, we ask for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. We want to see the true meaning of this passage. We want to understand your words that have been revealed to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Father, we ask that that you would help us to see and understand this passage and also to apply it, Father. We we don't simply want to let these words fall on our ears and then walk out and never think of them again. We want to internalize them. We want them to seek seep into our hearts and to affect change. So, Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Emperor's New Clothes is a folktale written by Hans Christian Andersen in the early 1800s. And briefly, it goes something like this. There was an emperor who was known to spend lavish amounts of money on his wardrobe. And one day, a swindler, posing as a tailor, came to town. And he offered to make for the king a magnificent set of clothes, one that had been never seen before by, by anyone else, a a set of royal clothing that would impress the entire kingdom. And so the king was intrigued, and he commissioned this tailor to to make these clothes. But then the tailor mentioned one more thing. He said, so that you know, O king, these clothes are so splendid that they can only be seen by those of high nobility and intelligence, and to the common folk and to the fool, they are invisible. The king said, proceed. Proceed. And from time to time, he would check in on the tailor. And although he wouldn't see anything on the looms, he saw the tailor with a needle uh, making movements as if he were sewing clothing. And the tailor would say, look how this is turning out. Have you ever seen anything like this? Look, Look at this gold embroidery. Look at these silver buttons. And the king, not wanting to be called a fool, complimented the tailor. Oh, yes, I can't wait. Finally, the day arrived, and the tailor finished, and he had the king come in, and standing in only his underwear, dressed the king with these new clothes. He complimented the king. He said he looked very regal, and that all his subjects would be impressed, so much so that he insisted on a royal procession through the downtown area of the kingdom. The king agreed, and so the royal procession made its way through the streets, and the the Folks, the townsfolk on either side of the, the street reluctantly and, and rather uncomfortably also complimented the king and went along with the charade. They too had heard that only fools uh, were unable to see the clothes and they didn't want to be called fools, uh, nor did they, did they want to insult or offend their king. Finally, they arrived in the town square and a hush fell on the entire assembly as the king stood there in only his underwear and all eyes were on the king. And in that moment, a young boy cried out, the emperor isn't wearing any clothes. Of course, the emperor and everyone else immediately knew that they had been had. And at this time, the tailor was nowhere to be found. The tailor in this story, who is really a con artist, told the king or told the emperor what he wanted to hear. You're going to look great. You're going to look regal. All your subjects will be impressed. He told the king what he wanted to hear. 
But the child told the emperor what he needed to hear. And that was the truth. In John chapter 3, Jesus tells a man named Nicodemus not what he wanted to hear, but what he needed to hear. Jesus tells him the truth. Jesus tells him that no one, unless they are born again, can enter the kingdom of God. We still need to hear this truth. The world still needs to hear this truth because being born again marks the difference between being a believer and an unbeliever. And as we're going to see from this passage, being born again also marks the difference between being a believer and being a believer who's not really a believer. So we're going to look at this passage and draw out the truth that God has for us to see. Starting in verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one could do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. This passage begins at the end of chapter 2. Many believe, but not really believed. It says, now when he, meaning Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. So this This is telling us that Jesus is still in Jerusalem. It's still that first Passover. Uh, We looked at the temple cleansing last week. He's still there. That, that, That feast or that festival is still going on. And he's still doing signs. Remember, John is not telling us all the signs that Jesus did. John has selected certain signs and is laying them down like pathway stones to lead people to put their belief in Jesus. So, Many of the signs that Jesus were doing were witnessed by all kinds of people. And when these people saw the signs that Jesus did, it says, many believed in his name. And at first glance, we might initially think, well, that's great. Good. That's kind of the whole point, isn't it? So that people would believe. Let's celebrate that many people were believing in Jesus. But any initial excitement that we might have from reading verse 23 is immediately tempered by verse 24. It says, but Jesus on his part 
did not entrust himself to them. So now we have to ask, well, what's, what's happening here? Is, is Jesus rejecting his own followers? Is believing in Jesus now not good enough for Jesus? In order to get the full force of what John is saying, we need to see the word play that's going on here. Even though it says many believed in his name and Jesus did not entrust himself to them, that word for believed and entrust are, are the same in the original language. Exact same word. So we could render it, many trusted in his name, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them. Or we could say, many believed in Jesus, but Jesus didn't believe in them. Why? Why did Jesus not believe in or entrust himself to those who believed in him? Well, John tells us in the very next section of that verse, it says, because he knew all people. Jesus knew that their belief was not genuine belief. Jesus knew that their belief was not real belief. This is the kind of belief that has no substance to it. This is the kind of belief that has no root, no depth. These people were awestruck by the signs that Jesus were, were, was doing, but that's, that's about it. These were people that might have been willing to vote for Jesus, but not willing to die for Jesus. These were people that were willing maybe to pay attention to Jesus, but not willing to live their lives for Jesus. These were people that may have given Jesus a a thumbs up, but they had not counted the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. And Jesus knew it. It says he knew all people. He knew their hearts. Jeremiah 17.10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. Uh, 1 Kings, Solomon, praying to the Lord, says, For you and you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind. And verse 25 continues, And needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus does not need intel from us. Jesus does not need someone else to fill him in about people. Jesus does not need our input in order to see clearly. So what John is telling us is that Jesus knows who really believes in him and who says says they believe in him but don't really believe in him. Well, then we come to Nicodemus at night, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. First of all, thank you, ESV translation team, for not rendering the end of chapter 2 using uh, gender-neutral language. And it really does make a difference here. I want us to see this. Here's John 2.25 NIV and John 2.25 ESV. Listen to the difference. NIV says he did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. ESV says, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And then look at the very next verse. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man 
came to Jesus. Do you see, one repeats the word man over and over again. The other one makes it seem like chapter two closes out the end of a a passage. And then chapter three starts something new with a new person being introduced. You miss the force of the language that's in the original language. So this is one of the reasons why we have ESVs in the pew. It's because we don't want a Bible that has as one of its agenda to translate the word of God with gender-neutral language. God did not create a gender-neutral world, and he did not inspire a gender-neutral Bible. A man of the Pharisees came to Jesus. John is telling us, do you see how these two go together? This is why, another reason why we didn't include 23 through 25 with last week. It doesn't go with the temple cleansing. It goes with Nicodemus. It shows us that Jesus knows the hearts of all men, including this man, Nicodemus. And that is why Jesus, when he addresses Nicodemus, tells him what he needs to hear and not what he wants to hear. Jesus knows exactly what Nicodemus needs to hear more than anything else because he knows what is in all men. A man of the Pharisees. We've talked about these, these people before. Pharisees mean separated ones. They were separated from everyone else. These were the ones that added to the law of God with their own oral tradition and their own um, made-up regulations, and they were very religious. You would be hard-pressed to find a more religious person than a Pharisee. He was a ruler of the Jews. That means he was on the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the 71-member council that ruled over all things Jewish. They were like the legislative branch and the Supreme Court rolled into one. They were the final authority for anyone that had any kind of issue in the Jewish community. Now, they were under Rome's rule, but Rome, for the most part, let them do what they wanted to do. It says that Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. Well, this tells us a couple things. First, it tells us that Nicodemus was curious enough to to seek Jesus out. He wanted to know more about this man and the person that was doing these signs. But he was also cautious enough not to do it in broad daylight. He was on the Sanhedrin. He was with the rest of the Jews, the Jewish elite that ruled over Jerusalem and and everywhere else. And he just wasn't ready to go public with his support or interest in Jesus. But when it says that he came to Jesus by night, it's more than just a time marker. John uses night in the Gospel of John to communicate spiritual darkness. Here are a couple examples. John eleven ten. but if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. John twelve thirty six. the one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. And then John thirteen thirty. so after receiving the morsel of bread, He, meaning Judas, immediately went out, and it was night. So John is telling us, in addition to being at night, literally, this man Nicodemus, even though he knew a lot about the things of God, even though he was was way up here in terms of the social status in Jerusalem, even though he knew a lot about the, the things of God and the word of God, and that he had spent his lifetime studying the things of God, he was still in spiritual darkness. He had not yet been born again. Second half of verse 2. Rabbi, 
This is Nicodemus's opening words. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things, these signs that you do, unless God is with him. This is an opening greeting. This is the first shot, and Nicodemus launches it. He has come to Jesus with an agenda. He wants to talk to him about something, and this is just a way to break the ice. It's a very polite greeting. He's basically saying, um, uh, I'll give you this, Jesus. You have my attention. These things that you've been doing, I, I'm impressed. And just so you know, I'm even willing to acknowledge that we're on the same team. Okay? I don't think you're all that bad. What Nicodemus wanted to hear and probably expected to hear was some kind of reciprocal uh, compliment, some, some kind of polite exchange that, 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 that kind of bumped the ball back over in his court. Something like, um, well, thank you, Nicodemus, and I appreciate your leadership on the Sanhedrin. I can tell that you really do want to please God in your rulings, or something like that. That's what he expected to hear. That's what he wanted to hear. But Jesus didn't tell Nicodemus what he wanted to hear. He told him what he needed to hear. Verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Boom. Whatever agenda Nicodemus had just flew out the window. Whatever he had come to talk to Jesus about, that, that just immediately got shoved to the side. It says Jesus answered him. Does Jesus' answer match what Nicodemus said? No. Did did Nicodemus even ask a question? No. Jesus cut through the pleasantries and went straight to his heart. He knew all men. And he knew that this man needed to hear more than anything else this statement. You cannot, Nicodemus, enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. For Nicodemus, this was a shocking statement. This was a disorienting statement because he was a Jewish Pharisee. First of all, he was a Jew. Uh, in, on college campuses around the country uh, in the fall, they have lots of fraternities and sororities, and typically in the fall there's this week called Rush Week, and that's where incoming freshmen, if they're interested in joining a fraternity, will, will pledge or will, will indicate that they're interested in this fraternity, and the fraternity on their part will, will give a bid or, or will, will say, yes, we're interested in you. And it's kind of this dance that they do. However, if, if someone comes in and their father has belonged to the same fraternity that they're trying to, to pledge, that's called legacy. And if their father, and then their father before them, their, his grandfather, if they were both in that same fraternity, well, that's double legacy status. And that pretty much ensures you're going to be invited. In fact, in some fraternities, they're given an automatic in if they have double legacy status. The popular belief among the Jews in the first century was that they had legacy status. 
almost infinite legacy status. The popular belief was that they had legacy status that went all the way back to Abraham. Not only am I a Jew, my father was a Jew, and his father before him, and his father, and his father, and his father, all the way back to Abraham. Of course, I'm going to be allowed entrance into the kingdom of God. I have legacy status. I'm an automatic in. The Messiah was coming to deliver the people of God. Who are the people of God? The Jews. The Messiah was coming to deliver and and usher in to the kingdom of God the Jewish people. So absolutely, Nicodemus was under the impression that he would be welcomed into God's kingdom. But with this statement, Jesus is saying, it does not matter who your father is. It does not matter that you can trace your blood lineage back to Abraham. That means nothing. You must be born again. That's not what Nicodemus wanted to hear. But it's what he needed to hear. It was the truth. Nicodemus was also a Pharisee. The Pharisees believed they could achieve a righteousness before God by obeying certain laws and rules and regulations and oral traditions and by washing their hands at certain times and uh, saying certain prayers and giving alms and things like that. Their hearts were far from God, but externally they followed the law to the letter. And not just the law, everything else that they had made up on top of the law. But with this statement, Jesus was saying, it does not matter how perfectly you keep the law. It does not matter how perfectly you follow all those traditions. You must be born again. Once again, Nicodemus did not want to hear that. He did not want to hear that everything that he had built his life upon, that the, the basis upon which he had lived every single moment of his life meant nothing. It meant nothing in terms of coming to God and entering the kingdom of God. In verse 4, we see just how shocking and disorienting Jesus' words were. I mean, you could, you could see Nicodemus kind of grasping here. Uh, born when he was old, enter a second time. How, how can... Yeah, clearly he is not understanding what Jesus is trying to tell him. So Jesus repeats himself. Verse 5, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And I want us to see the repeat. Verse 5 is verse 3, just repeated. He says it a little differently, but it's the same thing. Let's, let's clear up some misunderstanding about verse 5. When he says you need to be, uh, unless one is born of water and spirit, he's not talking about baptism. I know it's very tempting, especially today, to go there. It says water. There's water in baptism. Let's, let's make that connection, but that's not it. Uh, First of all, it's very difficult to see that Jesus was making a reference to something that hadn't been instituted yet. But more importantly, and, and to the context, born of water and spirit is talking about one event. It's still talking about being born again. It's still talking about regeneration. It's one event. It's a it's a phrase that refers to uh, one 
statement. So verse 5 and verse 3 are the same. There are not two truly, truly statements. There is one truly, truly statement. And it's made somewhat differently in each place. If someone's born again, then they're born of water and spirit. They're, they're taken together to, to describe regeneration. It's kind of like uh, John the Baptist at the beginning of Matthew um, when he says, Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He's not talking about two different things. He's talking about one event. Holy Spirit and fire. It's one descriptor of how Jesus will pour out his spirit and it will have a purifying effect on his people, much like fire has a purifying effect when it burns. It's the same thing here. When he uses the phrase born of water and spirit, it's one descriptor of how regeneration produces a born-again status, and it has a cleansing effect on people, just like water has a cleansing effect when it's used for washing. Verse 6, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. So physical birth results in physical life. Spiritual birth results in spiritual life. Physical birth cannot and never will produce spiritual life. Jesus is separating these two. There is no way to make ourselves spiritually alive. We cannot regenerate ourselves. We cannot, under our own power or will or decision or desire, bring ourselves from spiritual death to spiritual life. Jesus says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. He's saying, this shouldn't be a radical concept to you, Nicodemus. Later on, he's going to call him the teacher of Israel. And the you, and you must be born again, now in verse 7, that, that second you is plural, which means Jesus is cranking up the heat. He's saying, no, not just you, Nicodemus, everybody, all the Pharisees, all the Sadducees, all the Jews, all the Gentiles, everybody must be born again. He gives them an illustration of the Spirit's activity. It's like the wind, Jesus says. You can't see it. You can't see where the wind comes from. You don't know where it's going. And still today, we can't put our finger on a map and say, here is where wind originates. This, this spot is where it all comes from. Or uh, we, we can't identify right here this cubic foot of air and say, I know where it's going to be in five minutes. We don't know. Likewise, says Jesus, So it is with the Holy Spirit. We cannot direct or control or show where it's going or how it's going to work. But we can witness the work of the Holy Spirit as it produces the sanctifying work in people and regenerates their hearts and brings them to spiritual life. Do not marvel or wonder or be amazed or be astonished at this. It's almost as if Jesus is anticipating Nicodemus saying, well, that's interesting because I've never seen that happen. I've never, I've never watched someone be born again. Jesus is saying it's not, it's not like that. It's not an event that you can see and witness. It's an inward work of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. What you are going to see, though, are the effects of the Holy Spirit on people who are born again. What we need to hear, let's summarize this passage by saying this, many people believed in Jesus 
because of the signs he performed, but their belief was surface belief with no root and no lasting commitment. Jesus, who has perfect knowledge of all people's hearts, was approached by a Jewish Pharisee named Nicodemus. Jesus confronted this man with the truth that all people must be born again into, uh, to enter the kingdom of God. At the beginning of this passage, which does start at 2.23, it says many people believed in Jesus. But then immediately after that, it tells us, but they didn't really believe. And Jesus knew it. Because he could see into people's hearts. Many said they believed, but they didn't really believe. This still goes on today. It's called nominal Christianity. Nominal means in name only. So nominal Christians are people that say they believe in Jesus, but they really don't believe in Jesus. They might go to church when it suits them. They they probably self-identify as Christians, but they're not real believers. They're not saved because they've not been born again. If we had to paint a picture of of a nominal believer in, in generalities, it might look like this. Their walk does not match their talk. The way they live their life does not match how the Bible describes a follower of Jesus lives their life. It just doesn't match up. They do not practice a radical, sacrificial, self-denying obedience to the word of God. The ongoing unrepentant sin in their life is trivialized, excused, defended, self-justified. They will not allow themselves to be corrected by God's word. They view their time and money as their time and their money and not the Lord's. Their worldview is not built upon biblical truth, but on their own opinions and their own beliefs. What they think is funny and entertaining are the same things that the world thinks is funny and entertaining. They say they love God, but they have no love for the commandments of God. They do not strive after holiness. In short, Jesus is there to save them, but they are not here to serve Jesus. Do any of these things describe you? I hope not. If they do, you probably don't want to hear these things. But if there's anyone here this morning that is a nominal believer, you need to hear these things because it's the difference between salvation and remaining in your sins. The emperor knew in his heart that he was not wearing any clothes even before the child shouted it out alongside the road. He knew it. So did everyone else. But he was told things he wanted to hear. You're going to look great. All your subjects are going to be very impressed when they see you in these clothes. He was told what he wanted to hear. So he went along with the deception. Satan is the ultimate charlatan, the ultimate liar, the ultimate swindler. And he tells people what they want to hear. He says things like this. Well, do you consider yourself a Christian? Then you are. Did you pray and accept Jesus in your heart? 
Okay, well then that's all there is to it. Go enjoy your life. Calling ourselves a believer in Jesus does not mean we are a believer in Jesus. Jesus said you must be born again. Now let's make sure we understand this. If this is the difference between being a believer and an unbeliever, and between being a believer and a nominal believer, between being saved and not saved, we need to get this one right. So let's make sure we understand what it means to be born again. This is another way of describing regeneration. Titus 3.5 says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So this is a doctrine taught in Scripture. Here's, here's the most basic, concise definition that I can give you for, for regeneration, which is another word for being born again. Spiritual rebirth by the power of God. Spiritual rebirth by the power of God. Regeneration precedes faith. It comes before faith. Regeneration comes before repenting and believing in Jesus. Regeneration comes before conversion. Regeneration comes before any thought that we might have about, oh, I think it's probably a good idea to repent and believe because I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. Before those thoughts happen, before that heart looks after and longs for a Savior, regeneration happens. It comes first. Scripture teaches us that since Adam, we are all born with a sinful nature and our sinful nature will not, on its own accord, will not seek the things of God. The sinful nature is hostile to the things of God. God first has to do a work in our heart so that we are willing and able to respond to the word of God as we hear it and place our faith in Jesus. Regeneration always comes first. So born again is something that God does at God's own initiative in which we are completely passive. We don't lift a finger. We don't help God out. It's something God does. We do not cooperate with or contribute to our regeneration. It is a powerful work of God by a special operation of the Holy Spirit that infallibly, always, without exception, produces new life. No one can be saved unless they have first been born again by the power of God at God's initiative. That's why Jesus says no one enters the kingdom of God unless they're born again. So regeneration, spiritual rebirth by the power of God. Without being born again, we remain dead in our sins. Without regeneration, people can claim to be believers, but they're not really believers. Well, how do we know this happens? How do we know when this has happened? Well, like Jesus said, it's not an event that we witness or see. We can't, we can't stand back and, and watch someone become uh, regenerated or born again by the power of the Holy Spirit in their heart. Uh, if only it were that easy. We all remember our uh, second grade science experiment where Somebody in their backyard finds a cocoon on a stick and so they bring it into class and we set it over by the window and eventually we see the caterpillar emerge and transform into a butterfly. We can't watch it like we watch something like that. What we can see are the effects, just like Jesus gave this illustration of the wind. We can't see it, but we can see its effect. 
It's the same thing with the Holy Spirit. When someone is born again, there will be evidence of this new heart and this new spiritual life. Real believers will worship the Lord as members of their local church unless providentially hindered. They're they're willing to confess Jesus as their Savior, even if it means uh, personal loss or persecution. Once again, if we had to paint a picture of what a born-again believer looks like, it could go something like this. Their walk does match their talk. They're not perfect. They're not perfectly sinless. But their walk matches their talk. The way they live their life matches what the Bible describes a believer living like. They do practice a radical, sacrificial, self-denying obedience to God's word. There is no ongoing unrepentant sin in their life. And the sin that they still do have and do commit is never trivialized or excused or or brushed under the rug or self-justified or defended. Instead, it is continually confessed and repented of and they take concrete steps to remove it from their life. They not only welcome but seek out correction from God's word. They view their time and money as belonging to the Lord and they seek to be faithful stewards over what God has allowed them to have for this short time. Their worldview is built exclusively on biblical truth and every belief and a personal opinion they have always gets run through the filter of scripture to be tested. And if any personal belief or opinion is found to contradict God's word, it's immediately and joyfully discarded and done away with. There is very little, there's some, but there's very little that the world finds funny and entertaining that they also find funny and entertaining because the world doesn't make content to glorify God. They say they love God, and they do. And they also love his commandments and his people and his church. They demonstrate a continual, lifelong striving after holiness. In short, Jesus has saved them, and they're here to serve Jesus with their whole life. Are you born again? Do any of these things describe you? I would think that the vast majority of us here this morning would be able to answer yes. How about your family? How about your extended family? How about your friends that you still keep in contact from the old days? Your neighbors? Your co-workers? Might some of them fall into this category of verse 23? Might some of them call themselves believers, but are really unbelievers. This is one of those things that we probably don't want to hear, but we need to hear. We know people. We are close to and love and, and are probably related to people that we know who might say they're believers, but everything in their life screams they're not. And we know them. We know they're not saved. We don't want to be like the townsfolk who watched the emperor walk on by in his underwear, not being clothed at all, and they said nothing. We don't want to be the ones that see our family members and our friends and our co-workers walking through life without being clothed with the righteousness of Christ, and we say nothing. 
because we don't want to offend them. I don't know if you've ever confronted someone about their unbelief, but if you have not, be prepared for some pushback. Because when you tell people these things, they're things that they don't want to hear. And it's easy. It's very easy to be a nominal Christian today. There are lots of churches that are not proclaiming the truth of Christ, but instead are telling people what they want to hear. Uh, 2 Timothy 4, 3-4 says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth. Paul's telling Timothy, look, this, this idea of, of pastors and teachers and leaders saying things that people want to hear, this is not going away. This is never going to go out of style. There's always going to be someone there willing to tell people what they want to hear and unwilling to tell people what they need to hear. The emperor wanted to hear that he looked good. People want to hear that they are good. The emperor wanted to hear that he had appeared, he appeared regal before his subjects. People want to hear that they will appear righteous when they stand before God. Jesus did not tell Nicodemus what he wanted to hear. He told him what he needed to hear. The church also must tell people what they need to hear. And they need to hear the gospel. They need to hear that they must be born again. People need to hear the truth. And the truth is that all of us are unable, excuse me, incapable and unable to save ourselves. We're all born with a sinful nature. The truth is we're not good. We're not. We're born with a sinful nature. That sinful nature and our sin keeps us separated from God and his grace and his salvation. Jesus, on the other hand, was not born with a sinful nature. Jesus never sinned. He lived his his life in perfect obedience to the law of God. And he willingly offered himself as an acceptable sacrifice to God in payment for sin. He took the wrath of God that we deserve and that he did not deserve upon himself. And it's because of what Jesus has done that we can be saved. God commands all people everywhere to repent. Just, just as Jesus told Nicodemus that plural you, you, you need to be, you all need to be born again or else you will not see the kingdom of God. In the same way, God commands you all, meaning all of us, all people, Jew, Gentile, everybody, you must place your faith in Jesus Christ or you will not see the kingdom of God. When we turn to Christ in faith, God forgives our sin. He forgives it because Jesus' sacrifice paid the penalty. He took the wrath of God that we deserve upon himself so that payment has been made, that that sacrifice satisfied or appeased the wrath of God. It's called propitiation. God's wrath that is rightly to be poured upon us instead was poured out on Jesus so that when we place our faith and trust in him, God says, payment received. I do not have to send you to hell for eternity. I poured out the wrath you deserved on my son. It's paid for. 
And he also, when we place our faith and trust in Jesus, says, I am going to credit this perfect righteousness to you. I'm going to impute this, like putting on a set of clothes. I am going to clothe you with the righteousness of Christ so that you no longer stand there in your sin and your unrighteousness. You have the righteousness of Christ clothed upon yourself. And so when I look at you now, I can rightly, like a just judge, declare you to be righteous because I can do that on the basis of Jesus's righteousness, not yours. You're wearing his righteousness. That's what the world needs to hear. That's what our friends and family need to hear. That's what our children need to hear. That's what our parents need to hear. That's what we need to hear. Amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for Jesus. For making it possible for creating a way. And Father, we we give you thanks that when we place our trust in Christ, it's not just possible that we might be saved. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't make it possible for some to be saved. He took names to the cross. His blood was shed for his people. And every single person that he died to save will be born again. You will accomplish that. You accomplish our salvation from beginning to end. So, Father, we give you praise. We give you thanks. And we ask for boldness so that we can proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to those you've placed in our path. In Jesus' name, amen.